Okay, in, in looking at this today, um, in, in looking at this today, um, in beginning, even before we go into this passage, um, I know um, some of us have people that we love that's in the military, or you hear me talk a lot about the military, and you probably know that often most militaries like to brag about how good they are, true or not. Um, most military is just the nature of it. Um, when I was in the Marines, uh, during my time in the Marines, I was fortunate to go to six different countries um, and work with probably uh, probably two dozen uh, different countries, militaries, and who knows, probably like 30-something different kind of uh, units in my, my time there. It was a neat time just because it was the global war on terror and the Marine Corps was short on people and we just went everywhere, including places like Ukraine. I realized no matter what country we deal with, uh, there was a sense I think we've always respected everyone uh, we trained with. But we realized everybody, no matter who they were, their military, they're always bragging. Um, my personal experience, the guys that I've always felt among those 30 different units we've ever trained with, the guys that marched the best, like, or they could go with their packs with no problem, and, and most of their numbers, most of them do not fall out, like phys they're that physically fit, were actually Lithuanians. Okay, It was actually the Lithuanians when we were training. Um, when we were actually in Ukraine training, okay, and then different guys were different things, okay. There were guys that were like, "Wow, um, man, those guys were really tough." I remember working with even um, Jin and I. We were actually together when we were in Denmark and Poland, and man, those German special forces guys were so tough. I mean, they talked so much smack against us, and then they all thought we all looked kind of short, and they were all, I guess, all oh, you guys wear green, and you guys look like all little. Elves and the island we were in had all these myths about elves, and they were like, maybe you guys are those missing elves you guys were talking about. And we were like, oh. But then the thing we couldn't say much because they were actually much more tougher than us than who we are. I'm bringing this up as to say, military guys love to brag, true or not? Okay, um, even in within the same country, right? You see guys like the army with say certain things about Marines, and and with this, I think there's a place for friendly rivalry, but I also think there is something that sometimes people and countries and nations could trust the military might more than they um, should, okay? And ultimately, we know as a Christian, there's a spiritual dimension. We should ultimately trust in God, and we should be very careful, warning all throughout scriptures of trusting in military mights and stuff. And of course, I actually think sometimes the most wicked of people, they idolize power, and sometimes there could be people that idolize power in the position of authorities as leaders of countries and even and, and, and a unique thing, I think, from our 21st or 20th century onward is not just only leaders of countries, but even of international global system, okay? International global system, um, where they could have so much hubris and so much pride and so much wickedness that they think that other countries' consideration doesn't matter, and therefore they could do whatever they want. And in light of this, by the way, this is, there's enough to point to a lot of people in this, including, I think, some subset of our part of our government, okay? I think this message is a sober warning because God in this passage is God is taunting the military might of Nineveh. Okay, God is taunting the military might of Nineveh. And if you guys remember, Nineveh is the capital of what? The Syrian Empire. In looking at this today, um, I think it's a pretty simple point, pretty simple outline. There's only two outlines, oh, two points for this outline. Today, our main point is we're going to see two points that God... Uh, um, that shows God predicting a serious fall so that we will believe God's word with what it says and submit to his authority. We're going to see that God's word, man, when he predicts the fall, God's word is trustworthy. 
And therefore, we should, as application, submit to his authority, okay? So these are going to be the two points. Point number one, God predicts Assyria's vulnerabilities, okay? God predicts, that is his foretelling ahead of time, okay? God predicts Assyria's vulnerabilities. This is based upon verses 12 to 13, okay? God predicts Assyria's vulnerabilities. This is based upon verses 12 to 13, okay? And point number two, God mocks Assyria's futile strength, okay? God mocks Assyria's futile strength, okay? This is based upon verses 14 to 15, okay? God mocks Assyria's futile strength, okay? This is based upon verses 14 to 15. And the military dimension, I think in light of everything, um, the last two weeks, I think maybe perhaps this might be sound a bit more relevant uh, with this, okay? Because um, as we go over this, um, because we can see countries and nations right now involved with war, right? And I think there's if there's one thing that's going on is also I think we see that whenever wars begin, it's sometimes there's a lot of factors that's unpredictable, right? And even experts could be wrong. So I think in light of this, we see God's word is going to teach us something about the danger of even trusting in military might, okay? Um, I think there is a great humbling, just like what James prayed for, right? Even last week, this week, like um, 2021 and 2022, there's a great humbling of nations thinking, hey, our military is strong. Therefore, we would always get what we want politically, okay? Military might does not always transfer into what political policies or political objectives being accomplished. And we're going to see with this, with the case of Assyria, this is a lesson for all of us, okay? This is a lesson for all of us. And I also don't want this to be a message just like um, only for believers, but there's a sense in the context, remember, is to be comforted to say, though there are people out there, and especially um, there are wicked people that want to control the world through various means, through soft power and, and, and hard powers. Nevertheless, this should bring us comfort that God will frustrate what they will want to do. And military might, God is able to make it vulnerable and even futile also as well. So let's set this context in Nahum chapter 3. Remember the context. Um, there's five sections here. The first seven verses gives us the reason why God's going to judge Nineveh okay, and the Assyrian Empire. The first seven verses. Then afterward, verses 8 onwards, including the section we're looking at today, um, it doesn't go into much details why God is going to judge them, but it's now God, after laying down the reason, and I actually think Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 to 7 is one of the most darkest chapters in Scripture, describing things of uh, of sexual exploitation, human trafficking, all of that, right? Uh, and slavery. And now we see in light of their sinfulness, we're going to see why God, because they're so sinful, it's such a sinful thing, God is taunting them, okay? There's three different taunts. We saw one taunt last week, okay? Um, the, 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 the taunting that happened last week is, remember, they were looking at the comparison of history, like the city of Thebes, of saying, hey, if you think you're so mighty, remember the city of Thebes, which is the capital of the empire, of the Egyptian empire, Never been attacked for a thousand years. If they could fall, what makes you think your city that's never been attacked for a hundred years, that you are somehow uh, no longer vulnerable to anybody, okay? So today we're going to now look at a more militarized taunt, okay? It's taunting the military of Assyria um, that we see here, okay? So in light of this, let's look at point number one. God predicts Assyria's of vulnerabilities, okay? Let me read again verses 12 to 13. It says, All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. 
Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consume your gate bars. Okay, so we look at this section here. It's actually predicting a serious military vulnerabilities. Okay, and this might seem for us in hindsight, looking back, uh, now that we know what happened in history with uh, the destruction of Nineveh, it might seem like okay, we could be almost like this might be, I don't know, we could take it for granted. But when Nahum was written, when Nahum wrote this prophecy, this was actually in the um, 700s BC when Assyria was actually in its most biggest strength. Okay, And if you guys remember, Nineveh has not been attacked for over 100 years. And actually for 100 years, Nineveh, uh, uh, the Assyrians have never lost a major military battle. Okay, uh, So in light of this, when they make this prediction, this would almost seem like it is incredibly impossible to happen okay but god predicts ahead of time says you know what this will happen the destruction of the city will happen and what he gives here what god's word here in verses 12 to 13 gives is actually four images how many images four images of assyria's vulnerabilities okay four images of its vulnerabilities okay these images, like I said earlier, would have not been believed by people of that time. I can imagine if there's any geopolitical strategists of that time period or military experts who say, no, we don't see this happening. Nahum, you are wrong. But God's ways is always right. Okay. So if we can, we see the first image. Okay. First image we see is actually God uses imagery of fig leaves. Oh, correction, figs being eaten. Okay. Let me read this part. In verses 12 is the first imagery. Let me read this again. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Okay? So notice when you look at fortification, is it singular or plural? Talk to me. Anyone want to unmute? Is it singular or plural when it says fortification? Singular or plural with fortifications? Josh typed up uh, and said plural. Okay? Okay, so plural, so it's indicating more than one. What I think this is, is this is talking about how there's, um, throughout the uh, the Syrian Empire, there's actually places in certain um, area where there's fortifications, where there's a military fort, okay? And these fortifications, of course, would be very important for various reasons. Why? Because it protects different part of the empire, and there's also ability to project what? Powers, okay? To be able to project powers, where um, you have troops available. And also, let's just say, you know, um, it, annually, the Assyrian army would go marching with a big, huge army, usually around springtime, to go uh, conquest or also to go to um, parts of the empire that perhaps broken away and said, we're going to rebel, we're going to be on our own, and they will go and squash them and that kind of thing. And when they do, the soldiers would need, what, food and weapons and gear and all those things. And these fortifications would be places where are almost log logistical staging area ahead of time, okay? And and these areas would, of course, been protected um, by soldiers and would have been fortified in, in geographically or, or physically in some ways that make it very hard to be attacked. And notice here, with these fortifications, what is it being compared to? Is they're being compared to fig trees with ripe fruit, okay? Fig trees with ripe fruit. And I like how what God does here is he uses uh, imagery of a plant that would have been familiar for that whole ancient Near East area in the Middle East of that area. Whether you live in 
Assyria, you live in the Babylonian, or you live in Israel, they would have known what a fig is as a fruit, okay? And it would say it's ripe, okay? Um, why, why is it making this comparison? Is because I think in Scripture, remember, um, while this is written rhetorically to be addressing towards Assyria and Nineveh, the actual true audience is who? Is actually those in Judah. They're hearing this so they could know that this nation who's so wicked, they will be judged by what? They will be judged by God and to give comfort for those in Judah. Okay, So when they hear this imagery, they, they would have been invoked and said, Yeah, we know what this imagery is. Okay, A fig tree with ripe fruit. Okay, If you guys could turn real, real quick with me to Isaiah 28 verse 4. Why we're going over here is to get the imagery so that we could understand like... For the Jews, they would have known this imagery. This would give it an imagery to know that, hey, this is God's wrath. When these fortifications are being compared as fig trees being eaten. If we turn to Isaiah 28 verse 4, if I could have, um, if I could have, Jesus, would you be able to read for us um, Isaiah 28 verse 4? Yeah, uh, verse 4, it says, The fading flower... Of his beautiful splendor, which is on the summit above the rich valley, will be like a ripe fig before the summer's harvest. Whoever sees it will swallow it while it is still in his hand. Yeah, amen. Okay. What we read here by context is this would have been written by Isaiah, and he's saying that God's going to judge one of the 12 tribes of Israel that's called Ephraim, or it's, it's like a geographical area. Okay. And when he says it's going to be judged, God's word to describe metaphorically God's judgment it's like they're like a ripe fruit that's just ready to be eaten in the summer and they're just consumed literally like with that imagery right we literally consume food and they're saying this is what's going to happen and when, if this is describing God's judgment of Ephraim one of the tribal areas or, or tribes of Israel one of the 12 tribes actually then he's using that same imagery to say that God if he's able to judge Hebrews and, and Israel is he able to judge even also a nation that's a world empire that's wicked and, and, and all that yes it is okay if I could give this analogy um, just because um, why do we look at Isaiah 28 is so that we could when you turn back with me to Nahum chapter 3 verse 12 when you see that the fortification in Nineveh is being compared I think what brings comfort for those that the Hebrews reading this is they know do they know what it's like to see God's people being disciplined yes they they have Old Testament history that they could read but also in real life also as well what has happened is also they themselves have experienced this judgment. Does that make sense? Um, so when you use this language, this actually provokes a lot of imagery to say if God could judge the same way, they could also. If I could give it another analogy, um, I don't know if you guys um, have heard that the Ukrainian president uh, gave a speech to the English. So he's, you know, like um, he's, gave, he's been giving speeches, right? Every single day. Um, he's been giving speeches. One of the speeches that I heard that he was giving um, was that he actually gave a speech either yesterday or, or today. I don't. I can't figure out the timeline because of the time change or stuff like that. To the English Parliament, and he gave the speech about saying, "You know what? We will be in Ukraine. We will be fighting. We'll be fighting in the sea. We'll be fighting in the beaches. We're going to be fighting on the land, and we're going to be fighting in the cities, and we're going to be fighting in the streets, and we're going to be fighting in the rural area and all of this. Now, if you hear this, if you know history, does that sound like anyone else's speech that might you might sound familiar before? Anyone familiar with that? Ben Wartz, go ahead. 
Yeah, Winston Churchill. Yeah, that's what, Winston Churchill. I was gonna say yeah. Yeah, and that is if you notice that he do you think he just happened accidentally did that or is he doing this to invoke previous knowledge of the English people and their experience? It is right. If just by way of context to fill it in, Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of England. When he gave that speech in 1939, England was at war. The United Kingdom was at war with Germany. Before, there was another prime minister who kept on giving concession to, to Hitler. And then when finally he, uh, Winston Churchill became that, the British army, basically all of Europe was taken over. And the British army was almost going to be annihilated in a small little place called Dunkirk when they finally needed evacuation. And then they finally told the people, English people, like, you know, we're actually losing. France is going to fall. And everyone at that moment, including the king of England at the time, was saying, give in, just give in, concession, and surrender, let's give it peace treaty. And he finally went and gave this moving speech to say, you know, we will not give in because the world will be even a darker place. And by the way, during that time, Germany, uh, Hitler was very clear about his goal. He wrote a book called Mein Kampf, and you'll be surprised how few of the British Parliament members Ministers actually read Mein Kampf, and the only one of the few ones that did was Winston Churchill went against the grain. And so when he gave that speech and moved the people, he told them, he did not told them lies. There's something about human nature. You cannot if you if everything is dark and you tell things are optimistic, then people lose morale. I mean, look at even the, if if this is true, the Russian military they told oh you're not invading, and some of them were just found out the night before. Then also man you lose morale, but. Winston Churchill decided to say the worst thing possible. Hey, I cannot tell you we will win, but we have to fight because of this cause. So invoking this imagery, when the English people hear it, that's a very different, because they realize, oh, this is comparable. I think there's something that's similar here going on. If you guys could go back with me to Nahum chapter 3, verse 12. When it sees this from Isaiah 28, they know that God's able to judge. And then when you see these descriptions, they're like, yes, God has done this one time to judge. Unfortunately, it's us, our people. But if God could do this, how much more could he do to his enemy? Okay, to do this to his enemy's fortification of that of Assyria. So here, this imagery, I mean, it's such a thing where fortification, you normally don't think it shakes easily, right? But yet it's describing them as being shaken. That means God is more powerful than the enemy's fortification. Okay, and when they fall, it falls into the eater's mouth and they're just being consumed. What a very vivid imagery. Again, in this time period, this would have not been something that would have been predictable. That most of the experts, quote-unquote, of their day would have probably said, Nahum, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a military man. You don't know geopolitics. You don't know politics. You don't know Assyria. Okay, But God's word always stands. Let's go to second imagery. And that's of them comparing Assyria's military to that of a woman. Okay, Look at verses 13, the first part. It says, Behold, your people are women in your midst. Okay? Behold, your uh, uh, people are women in your midst. I know some of your version probably says your armies instead of your people. I think this literally is your is people. Uh, I don't. I don't think it, it, Hebrew. It is uh, im, which is means people. But I don't think this is talking about civilians. I actually think, in light of the context of everything here, in, in light of talking about the defense, I think he's talking about the armies, the soldiers of Assyria, and is saying, "Hey, you've become like women." Okay. Now I know sometimes you probably hear people insulting people saying, "Hey, you're like a woman, right?" Um, I think you probably see this a lot in the military. If you guys know me in real life, I'm really short in the Marines. Okay, um, it's the idea of being weak. And I remember one one time, you know, in the Marines, I was very short. We had to do it one time. Um, I just got promoted. 
um, to a corporal, which is the rank of, um, uh, it's like a junior non-commissioned officer. And I remember they were saying, okay, we had a Marine Corps ball in November where we have like the formal celebration of the Marine Corps birthday. And when I was there, I remember they said, okay, the youngest guys that just, the guys that just got promoted, you have to do sword details. And I remember we were practicing with the swords details like months in the head. Um, the swords are always longer than for me because most of the guys in the Marines are pretty tall compared to me, okay? And I remember all the sword I had was like, you know, 35 inch, 40 inch, was keep on hitting the ground when I was, you know, when we had to put it down like that. And I remember one of the guys that, the, the guy I was training was the first sergeant, he was like a, he was not only a drone instructor, he was like a drone instructor, he was a drone instructor for the drone instructors. That is, he was an instructor to train drone instructors. Um, and he rem- I remember he, ma- he made an insult, just saying, hey, get him a woman's sword, which means like the short sword, short, right? Now it's not a woman's sword, but that's, uh, bringing up is to give them imagery. We could often say uh, as an insult, someone that is weak. By the way, in using this term, this is fascinating because the Syrian king liked to insult their enemies and call them what? Women, okay? For example, uh, one of the um, one of their um, uh, one of their king is a guy named Ashadan, okay, and he describes elite soldiers from the other side that they're fighting again, and he calls them this, okay, fear of the great gods, my lords, overwhelmed them, and when they saw my mo- mighty battle ray, they became like crazed women, okay. So if I could give this as an analogy, it's like you're looking at a bunch of airborne troops, paratroopers. Right, usually in every country, that's your your toughest group of soldiers, or your naval infantry, your marines, and then you see them say, "Hey, they're like women when they see us." Okay, they're they're shaking and shrieking that, that kind of thing. So God, do you see? He uses their same kind of um, antagonism, and God is using it as a taunt back towards them and said, "Hey, your military might are going to become like a woman in the midst." Okay. So that's an imagery that we see here, okay? I know today in our culture, sometimes we don't like to say women is weak and stuff like that. But I, I do think sometimes in places where rubber meets a world with places of violence, people do become, men do take over. I still remember there was one time when I used to work security in Hollywood. Um, there was a mini riot. It, not, it, was not, it was not a BLM or anything. It was just like a riot because there was all these people in the streets to do some kind of, um, some rapper or whatever and like he just tweeted and say let's just take over the street of hollywood boulevard and literally thousands of people and i remember looking at lapd when they were lining up there's men and women but when they were about to make the assault they started moving all the women officers to be the flank to guard the side and all the ones that did the rushing were all what were all the men okay that did all the rushing and this is the place where you see the woman staff sergeant was in control and everything else but when it came time for the actual thing i was thinking wow it's interesting. Suddenly, it changed the dynamic when there's something with danger. Yet, was the woman in charge? Yeah. Afterward, the whole thing was over. Then she was regulating when everyone is being arrested. But the actual charging, it was all men. I'm bringing this up the reality of that. Okay. So I'm not trying to be misogynist, that kind of thing. Okay. See, let's look at the third imagery. Is now uh, a Syrian military is compared to that of an open gate. If you look with me in verses 13. The second clause or second line says the gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Okay, gates are usually meant to be what? Close, but there here is now saying, hey, the gates are open. By the way, if you look at verses thirteen, it's not talking about the gates of Nineveh. It actually says the gates of your land. It's saying the empire. If it's the gate of the capital, it's already bad enough. But he's saying, hey, your whole country is like an open gate, which. When Nineveh, when Nahum was writing this about Nineveh and Assyria, that would have been incredible 
Because most people say, no, this is a Bible contradiction because how could this be? Because look, have you seen how vast their armies are? How they could conquer everywhere? There's soldiers everywhere at the, uh, at the gate or at the border area. So how could you say this? There's all these fortifications. Even it's mentioned here. And I think what he's saying here is saying, hey, you could have all these fortifications, but in reality, it's such vulnerabilities that it's almost as if you don't even, you have a gate, but it's open. Notice, by the way, it didn't even just say open. It says wide open, right? It's not just, okay, a little bit open for someone coming. It's like totally wide open, advertising to people, hey, come in, right? Come in. It's open house. You know, it's open season for you to do whatever you want. And notice it says open to your enemies. Open to your enemies. By the way, this actually happened in history. Do you guys know who actually destroyed Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian Empire? Do you guys know which empire? It's actually the Babylonians, which is about 60 to 100 miles south. While their kings was too busy going out elsewhere, their, the Babylonians just said, oh, we'll just march our army over there and just, you know, take over. And of course, the siege happened and things of that nature. So we see here this prophecy got fulfilled, okay, that it, while they're so busy looking out, outward of the empire, within the empire itself, the Babylonians just decided to revolt threw away, uh, you know, revolt and got rid of those, the garrison, the Assyrian garrison there, and then marched towards where? Marched towards Nineveh, the heart of Cap. If you will, think about it, it's almost like your heart suddenly has an enemy and just march straight towards your head, right? Just Let's just say there's a bug or some, or, or some kind of bug, right? Just go straight from your esophagus area and go straight there. All vulnerability. You're trying to protect yourself, mask and everything else, then boom, just like that, just taken over, an enemy within, so to speak. Okay, and the fourth imagery is that of comparing their military and their might as burned gates. Notice verse 13, third line says this, fire consume your gate bars. Okay, this is actually a pretty ironic imagery. Okay, um, usually gate bars is to protect people from the outside. But if there's a fire and there's a gate bar, man, what happens? You can't escape. In other words, their very own ways to protect them from the enemies is now their very own source of the worst possible destruction that is pictured. These four imagery, okay? These four images, I mean. These four metaphors of that of a fig being eaten, number one. Number two, of them being their soldiers compared to women. Number three, them being a wide open gate. And number four, of burned gates is to tell, describe for us what? The truth that Nineveh will be destroyed, even though, and Assyria will be destroyed, even though at that time, it seems almost impossible. Two weeks ago, right, we know in, now I'm not going to, you know, I'm not spending time to bash on whatever, but I'm just going to give this an illustration. Two weeks ago, remember we were praying that there would not be a war in Ukraine, and of course a war happened, and I'm amazed one aspect is, I think, I think the whole world, I think we, we all agree that it's kind of amazing that Ukraine has not been taken over fully yet, that they've resisted this long. Um, I remember when it first started out, I saw even one of the a news articles says it'll probably be taken over in 96 hours in, what, four days. And we're on day, what, day 10, 11, or 12, or whatever it is, right? Or, yeah, right? Yeah, 12. Thank you, Mrs. Byrne. And this is, goes to show that what experts aren't always right. Where we feel the weight of a whole entire 
of the Russian army. How could this be possible? I bring this up as to say is this. Sometimes we do not know how history is. Experts could talk, talking heads, but guess what? I mean, when I say this, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying, please don't take this um, out of this, that Ukraine might win. I don't know. Everything's still in the air. But definitely one thing we do see is, um, I think every expert has said they were so surprised how long they've lasted, how long they have lasted up to this point. This is to say the same thing. This application of knowing this about Nineveh, back then they could probably see, oh, you know, Nineveh even had a better track record. A hundred years not losing battles. Have Russia lost battles within the last 100 years? 100 years ago is what? 1922. Yeah, they've lost some battles. They've lost some wars, right? They've lost Chechnya. They lost Afghanistan. Or uh, the first war of Chechnya. So this is to show you what with this imagery here, what's going on here is that, guess what? No military could be that powerful and that mighty. And that should be a sober warning for all those who worship power. Even one country's might. I love America, but America, I, as a, even as Christian, I need to preach myself. Hey, my hope is not in America, nor in American military. That it could be what defeated. All powers could be defeated. Okay, and we need to know this. Let's go to point number two. Um, if point number one is we see God predicts a serious vulnerabilities, and these things shows that um, it happens, then we need to go to point number two. Is God mocks a serious, futile strength. Okay? God mocks a serious, futile strength. Verses 14 to 15, if I could have... Abigail, could you come read 14 for us? You could read. We're going to read the passage first before we go to point number two. Okay, if you could bring... If you could read verse 14. And then Hannah, I want you to read verses 15. Okay? Um, Okay, verses 14. Draw for yourself water from the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the go into the clay and tread the mortar. mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Okay. And in verse 15, Hannah, you want to come read first? Verse 15. Mommy, she... Oh, Mrs. Burns, she, she, she saw it. Okay, in verse 15. Their fire will con- consume. consume you, the swirl. Swirl will cut you down. It will consume, consume you as the creeping. Creeping. Mm-hmm. Locust. Locust does. Consumes. Yeah. Consumes. Consumes lost. Consumes oh. you oh, as where? Huh. It's different. Oh, it's different. Okay, sorry. Oh, did I accidentally? Okay, probably accidentally. I think we're good with that pass. Okay. Um, the se- second half, by the way, of verse fifteen is going to be with the economic. Uh, taunt for next week But here when we look at this passage here um, You see I actually think there is sarcasm Okay Now um, Some people might think sarcasm is totally ungodly uh, But we actually see scripture at times do use sarcasm But I also think If you notice we've gone over Nahum 3 uh, Three chapters I actually think uh, I think 
I think uh, sarcasm, there's a place for that as a Christian, but it should be like pepper. It shouldn't be over the whole entire food, right? If your whole life is just sarcasm, then man. Um, and personally for me, I, I as a preacher try to actually, as a minister, try not to be as sarcastic as possible. Just because when you start, it becomes, you know, it is, at least for me, it's hard to stop, okay? But here, there is a sarcasm. And also there's a bit of irony. Because in verses 12, in verses 12 to 13, you see that God gives what? He already predicts that Assyria will fall, that they're vulnerable. But then now in verses 14, he tells a command, all these commands of what to do to prepare for battle. And is this battle going to be futile or is it going to be successful? It's actually going to be futile. That is, it's not going to be purposeful because no matter what happens, they do. No matter what they try and do, they're going to be defeated. Okay, So it is ironic. There's a lot of irony to tell them to prepare. And the command... They're commanded to prepare, okay, even though the prediction of their attack is already announced ahead of time that the Assyrians will lose, okay? Two preparations are mentioned in verses 14. The first half of verse 14 gives us two preparations. Number one is what? Um, It says, draw for yourself water for a siege. Because if they're surrounded, if someone's surrounding them, you want to make sure you have what? Food, okay? And you also want water, okay? You also want water. This is one of the things that I've been praying a lot about, even with Ukraine. Um, no matter what your politics is, to me, I think I'm really concerned for the people. Really concerned. Um, I always feel, even when I was in Iraq, anything in the beginning of war, people could be very idealistic, hold to noble things, defend our homeland. But once people start starving, once there's no food, once people start dying, once people start being killed, man, people's worst nature comes out. Okay, that's just my opinion. And I'm just so worried, like thinking about, man, we're, people are sending bombs and everything else. But what about food? What about water? Right? What about what will happen when the city will be under siege? So notice here, while under siege, I say, hey, draw water. Make sure you have water for the purpose of survival while Nineveh and the Syrian Empire is surrounded. Then notice the second um, command is strengthen your fortification. That is to make it stronger, to, to get ready, right? And you guys perhaps have seen, for instance, in different part of Ukraine, people they are trying to do all kinds of things, right? Fill sandbags, do all kinds of things, have all these um, things to be anti-tank things, ditches or, or, or devices and stuff like that, right? Or, or barbed wires, concertina wires, all those kinds of things. And they were saying, do the same thing. But the fortification back then, what does it look like? We actually see a little bit window because... From verses 14, second half onwards, it gives us details of what to do to prepare. Okay, so there's three further commands. Okay, it says go into the clay. What does it mean? Go into the clay is go get clay. Okay, go acquire clay and then make clay. But even with this, I think there's something interesting to make clay is to make what? Get clay to make bricks. Okay, one of the ways to defend themselves is Nineveh already has really nice stone. <coughs> Fortification, but those added brick layers is to make it what even thicker so that when they're shooting things, it wouldn't be burning, right? There's extra things that's there um, to protect it. The walls will be thicker and fortify perhaps other areas that might be weak or to make it even higher. Does that make sense? So it's very hard for uh, invading armies to, to have a device to climb up that high of a wall. So with this. With these things, you want more bricks to lay upon it to build, okay? And it says, tread the motors, okay? Tread the uh, motor. What does it mean? 
idea here is to um, is to when you put all the clay together, it's like you're mixing it up. Okay, you're mixing it up to make the actual brick. Okay, to make the actual brick. And then it says, take hold of the brick. Some of your version says, literally holding on to the brick. Okay? And I think when you look at these details of saying, this is uh, saying, okay, there's all these things going on, and prepare, defense, make your walls higher, put more fortification in walls, where places there's no walls. But guess what happened? I actually think this is a very futile, um, frustrated effort, because it's an effort that's done in vain. Because when it says here, go into the clay, notice it didn't say... It's, in, it's almost incomplete because when it says make the clay, it didn't say, hey, form them into block bricks, right? It didn't even say that. When it says tread the motor, like it's mixing up, it never even said, hey, join them together so that they will be completed. And by the way, when it says take hold of brick, notice it didn't say, hey, put on the brick on top of brick. It didn't say where. It just says hold on to it. So I think the imagery, what God's word is trying to do with uh, Nahum is trying to say, hey, it's incomplete pictures. It's, you just see flashes of it. It's, it's just, they're just so chaotic. They realize, oh, they need to defend themselves. But then they're making bricks, but then they don't even know where to put it, right? They they're, they're realize, okay, we're getting clay, but, but we're, not, like, we're not actually cutting up block by block to make it actual part. Okay, so this is the image of, of a lot of confusion. Because notice why? In the second half of their section, in verses 15, first half of verse 15, it sees that in, despite all the preparation, the attack will happen and their defense will fail. Nineveh's defense will fail because it says, their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will con consume you as a creeping locust consumes a crop. Okay? So we see here when it says the word there is indicating area. And I think what it's pointing towards is saying the very place where they're going to mix all the um, clay together, try to make brick. Guess what happened over there? Over there, the enemies will meet them. Exactly where they're trying to, what? Build um, defenses, okay? If I could give a maybe a modern analogy of what this is happening, if they're trying to build a defense here and then that's being attacked, that's almost like maybe the equivalent of like, you know, uh, an enemy plane bombs the very place you store all your, your bombs, all your ammo, and it blows up. And there's like, hey, this is a place we're supposed to have a strong point of defense capabilities, but now it's being degraded. The ability to defend is degraded. And this is what's going on here. When it says, their fire will consume um, you. It's like they're supposed to have fire to build brick, but now the fire just consumes Nineveh. Okay? Um, and when it also says the second imagery, it all, there's three imagery given here of the result of their destruction. Is It says, the sword will cut you down. The sword, of course, is a weapon of war. It's destroying Assyria. And by the way, the sword imagery is already mentioned earlier. If you guys could turn real quick with me to Nahum 2.13. Nahum 2.13. It says, Behold, I am against you, declare the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots uh, in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. Remember earlier we looked at this part where, where we look at the story about um, when we looked at the sermon of uh, the lions and the lamb. When we look at this, we saw Assyria is compared to what? Compared to uh, lions. And that's because Assyria likes to brag in their literature, calling themselves a lion, a fierce lion, okay? And in St. Aid, now guess what happened? Their young lions, their next generation, is now devoured by the sword, okay? So the sword imagery appears again in Nahum 3.5 to say, the sword will now cut you down, okay? And then let's look at the third imagery. Is it says it will consume you as a creeping locust consumes a crop. Lo uh, locusts 
as a symbol, an imagery of God's judgment appears other places in God's word, right? For instance, if you look at Joel, chapter 2 especially, they were comparing that God is sending all that to destroy what? Um, the world, okay? Uh, Joel, there's a discussion whether it's that the world of only Israel. I think there's a historical instance and also prediction that in the end uh, of God's judgment um, upon the wicked, okay? But here in Nahum 2.13, we see the imagery um, uh, uh, in life, uh, correction uh, of this, not 2.13, Nahum 3.15, I'm sorry, where they're like creeping locusts, they're consuming them like crop, eating it all up, okay? What does this mean as application when we see God mocks a serious, futile strength? I think first application, don't ever think um, you're ever too strong to resist God's will. Don't ever think you're ever too strong. Yeah, we can resist. We can be rebellious. But God is also God. Is He able to judge? Yes, in His time. That should actually bring a level of healthy fear, okay, um, when it comes to that. So we begin with the application first. But also, I think in line of the book's authorial intent, in its context of what it's trying to do, it's actually conveyed to us to actually be comforted. Be comforted, why? Because you need to realize God's enemies is never too strong to be judged by God. Now, there are a lot of people that are enemies of God. I think we need to mention this. I think, if anything, post-2020, you see the world is becoming, especially in the West, more and more non-Christian foundation or view of everything. Right? Even in things like family and even view of kids, right? You know, kids are very precious. God's word even says, man, if, if you stumble one of these, you, you, you will be, I mean, cast out with a millstone, right? Just, just incredible with that. And people are doing all kinds of things with kids these days. With abortion, with murdering them to the sin of what? Of even trying to change their identity of who they are that God designed them, right? And all these things. And guess what? God's word is very clear. That no enemies of God. And by the way, these enemies include national leaders. When they say, when they become tyrannical, they go against what God's word says, what a government is supposed to do. This also goes against, in our, our world today, from the 20th century onwards, we also, I do want to mention even those that are leaders, world leaders, in, they're not even government leaders in a state, but now even in international institutions of various kinds. Whatever those enemies of God, whatever you call them, right? Whether globalists, statists, Marxists, or, or even, I would also even say some who hold to a perverted form of Christianity, trying to, to have their nations follow. I think one thing you need to realize is what? Is you need to realize that all this, God says they are vulnerable and they could be judged. And, and let me say this also as well. I don't know if anyone here is this. Um, I do think Ukraine and um, Russia, there is a lot of complexities with it, but also, I'm. Uh, if you ask me lately, I've been also been kind of concerned of how some Christians in certain social media have even made it like Putin is this great hero of Christianity, and I'm actually very cautious because I'm cautious with that, and I actually think that's partly wrong. That that not partly wrong. That is wrong because Putin in Russia persecute Christians massively. The Bible believing Christians. If you're Baptist, like if you're an evangelical. They're, they would go against you. It's not just Salvation Army. You perhaps heard of it. Even for my circle, Master Seminary, right? They've also cracked down where guys that are missionaries had to eventually leave and everything had to be eventually Russians lead it. And even then, they give them a hard time. You know, if you ever listen to Putin's uh, Christianity, spirituality, it's very generic. Like, yeah, everything good morals. 
But when you actually, at, at least for me, I don't hear a clear definition of gospel saved by grace. I mention this because, yeah, I, I don't, I think the issue is complex, but we must not go the other extreme to say, hey, the West has some foreign entanglement in Ukraine, which I do think there is. Um, but that does not mean, therefore, hey, it's okay because there's some bad characters. Then, therefore, to bring about all of this. And it's not, I don't think it's advancing Christianity uh, with what he's doing. Okay, so we need to see this. I think we do need to see this. I, I'm saying this because just um, even this last week, there's some arguments I've had with certain individuals that would also, I also feel there's a lot of strangeness and inconsistency where we would say things like, hey, the war in Iraq was wrong, where you go invade a country because there's biological weapons. But then they say, oh, you know what? Putin is right. There is biological labs um, and therefore invade. And I was like, whoa, didn't you say made fun of neocons are wicked and evil? But now you're using those same kind of arguments. Or they would say the things like, okay, well, there's people being bombed. Therefore, it's right. To, and then you're like, whoa, wait a minute. But then you, didn't we say earlier that it was actually wrong when uh, our country is bombed? Therefore, you should invade all of Afghanistan, right? Invade all of Afghanistan and take over for a long time period. Then I think we're using the same inconsistency also as well. Then when we say arguments, oh, you know what? Countries and states could have a right to break away and be their own people. But then you're saying, no, Ukraine must be their own people, even though they uh, Russians, even though they speak a different language. Again, what I'm trying to say here is I'm not trying to be as political. I'm trying to say that for Christians, we need to be very careful. Um, sure, the media lies. Our mainstream media does not always tell the truth. I actually think America entangled in Ukraine too much. And how do I know this? Because I was a Marine that was there at one point. Even when we were there, we were, a lot of Marines were wondering, why are we here so close to the Russian border? No one would be secure. We would not like it. But I also think it is also the Christian stance. It is also we have to realize we cannot be reductionistic. And we have to say also as well that where something is wrong, something is wrong. So be comforted when you say, okay, sometimes we feel, oh, that means we're not going to take any sides. Whose side do we take on? But as a Christian, we need to realize we don't trust in might. We don't trust in a party. As a Christian, we have to say, hey, where someone's wrong, you have to say it's wrong. But be comforted. God will frustrate the world, right? Um, God will frustrate people that are for entanglement, like the George Soros of the world, trying to entangle with Ukraine. God will judge the globalists. God will judge the nationalists. God will judge the status and all that. But we as a Christian must walk the path of sharing God's word and also realize what? There are believers in Russia and Ukraine. We need to be comforted that God has his way and he will bring his judgment.